Your gifts and offerings of praise have been accepted by the Lord. Well done. You notice all three of us gentlemen use the same hair coloring, and uh, it's a new fad now. It's like uh, something about the hoary head, H-O-A-R-Y, supposed to indicate wisdom. It does in these two guys' case, I know, but I don't know about me. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Since I'm the shepherd of this flock, because God has a sense of humor, I also want to look out for your physical well-being as well as watch out for your souls. So I think I'll announce early that this will be greet one another with a holy fist bump season. (laughs) So just be aware of what's going around without panic and without any kind of fear or dread because we don't buy that so but if you're not during this season if you're not feeling well best to stay home get the tape you know the drill it's all it's all good Hebrews chapter 9 I'm going to call this getting the picture there's a picture presented to us which really is a vision and a revelation of Jesus Christ, to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 12, 1. And we'll be going there, incidentally, also. 2 Corinthians 12, as well as Hebrews 9. Getting the picture. The picture's coming into focus, and it's the vision by which God's people do not perish. Without a vision, the people perish. With a vision, the people flourish, and so we're going to flourish by seeing Jesus crowned with glory and honor afresh today, getting the picture. Hebrews 9, 7, but into the second compartment, this is a reference to the Day of Atonement in the Levitical cultus, what happens on the once-a-year Yom Kippur Celebration. It's a very significant but not overarching theme in Hebrews. And on that yearly annual occasion, into the second compartment, that is of the earthly tent, the earthly tabernacle, once a year, only the archpriest goes. The various priests in Levitical order are always making sacrifices in the first tent, the first compartment of the tent. And we know that from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. But once a year only, the archpriest goes, never without blood, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Now, we've already looked at the law of comparison and contrast or the law by which we compare and contrast certain things. And this is in contrast to Jesus Christ. He did not go into an earthly tent, but he went into the heavenly holy of holies as the archpriest. He did so once and for all and brought with him a perpetual offering of blood 
He did not go in with the blood of others, of rams and bullocks, goats, but with his own blood. He did not present an offering on behalf of himself because he was sinless and he had become sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. He did not only present an offering for sins committed in ignorance, but for all the sins of all mankind, intentional or unintentional, sins of ignorance, sins of willfulness and cognizance, not for the people, which is here a word for Israel, the people, meaning the people Israel, not for Israel only, but for the sins of the whole world. So there is a universality in the impact of Jesus Christ's blood. Now, we want to go, before we go to 9-11, I want to jump back just slightly to Hebrews 4.14 to get the picture. Hebrews 4.14, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. Now, we can view this, as, if we want, as the atmospheric heavens and the astronomical heavens into the third heaven, Paul talks about taking this same route, whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know. God knows, he said, 14 years before he wrote 2 Corinthians. He had an experience, and he doesn't talk about it often because he was about the gospel of Jesus Christ and not about visions and revelations per se, although there is room for that elsewhere. He said, now I've come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And in a way, he was forced to by the Corinthians because they were kind of backing off on his apostolic authority and they were taking in the, t the teachings of pseudo-apostles, false teachers. And so he said, I know a man in Christ. I know him very well. The word oida means I'm fully acquainted with this man who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. So we have plural heavens here. We have Paul speak of a third heaven, which again, we can take if we wish as the first heaven being the atmospheric heavens, the second being the celestial or the astronomical heavens, the third heaven being the throne room of God. And he said, into paradise, he likens paradise or equates paradise, which is used here and in Luke 23:43, where the criminal, if that's the word, it's not thief, but kakurgos, the thief or the criminal, who's also probably a murderer and an insurrectionist, was with Jesus the very day that Jesus was crucified. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. We also know that in paradise there is a garden of sorts and there is a tree of life in the midst of the garden and overcomers or victors are able to eat of that tree of life in the midst of the garden. In Revelation 2.7 that the paradise is related to a heavenly Mount Zion, to a heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God and all the features that we're going to look at as we round to a close today in Hebrews chapter 12. 
But Paul said, and I'll give you this early, Paul said that he heard certain things in heaven that are unlawful to speak about. He can't speak about them. And when he was in heaven, he wasn't evidently allowed to speak. There were things said there that were too sacred and about which he was too scared, little play on words, sacred and scared, to speak. They were inarticulable words that it's not permissible for a man to speak. But I have a theory that the content of what he heard in heaven includes the innovations made in the book of Hebrews. That the Hebrews author was given permission at least to indicate some of those things that were unutterable, inarticulable, because he speaks about a, the sprinkled blood in heaven, the sprinkled blood in the city of the living God, the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks. A man may not speak about what he heard in heaven, but the blood of Jesus speaks, and speaks articulately, and speaks of things which are unimaginable. And one of those things is that it cries out for the purification of the consciousness of sin, which we're dealing with here, with the differentiation of consciousness. And I'm going to show you either in, either in this message or messages to come, and I did deal with this in increment 300 on Wednesday. This is increment 301. There is a distinction between the act of Jesus Christ on earth, on the cross, when he obtained redemption, and there is a second act by which he went into heaven, through the heavens, into heaven, with his own blood. Now, however you want to address the controversy of literal and figurative blood, it's very clear that he went into heaven with not the blood of others, but his own blood. And so immediately the question arises with me, if that's true, then do these two acts take away from or detract from what is our motto here in Tetelestai Church? That we determine to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. The answer to that is no, it is not at all taking away from Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because the word for him crucified is having been crucified. And so it is the crucified Christ that went into the heavenly holy of holies and sprinkled, as it were, his blood for the purification of the consciousness of sins. That's what it means that he saves us completely. It doesn't just mean that he saves us all the way out there into eternity. It means that he saves us right now because it's one thing to be forgiven for our sins. It's another thing to be given the gift of amnesia about them and to forget them and to be purified from the very consciousness of sins. Until we are, we will not serve effectively as a priesthood. We will not serve effectively as intercessors. We will not be part of that pivot that turns the decline of history into an upsurge of history and into the redemption of history. Politics won't do it, and politicians won't do it, and no matter how they clamor for attention and say they can, they will not, they cannot, none can, 
We are in a period of deep and steep decline in our country, which is headed toward and already halfway into a tyranny that is going to be terrifically enslaving. And so this has relevance to us in as much as we can function as an effective priesthood. And as an effective priesthood, be part of a pivot that turns history for the better and for the evangelism of millions and for the glory of God. So it was the crucified Christ that made this offering. On the cross, Jesus and him crucified obtained redemption. In heaven, the crucified Christ, he who had been crucified, presents his, bot, his blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. And we might even try to address the idea of the interpretation of that. What does it mean that the blood of Jesus, the sprinkled blood, speaks better things than that of Abel? Does it mean Abel's blood that cries out from the ground? Or does it mean the blood of the offering that righteous Abel made to God? which spoke also to God and caused God to declare Abel righteous. And so we will take a look at that. I don't know how far we'll get that with that today, but what struck me beyond anything else, and I always wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what's first? What is first? And he puts at the forefront of my mind, many times he's faithful to do this, what I should talk about. And what kept pushing its way to the front was something that's pushed its way to the front with me many, many times in these past few decades. And that is the vision of one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14, there are two heavenly visions that have been prominent to me as, my, as a communicator of the word. One is Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, where there is a man above, where he is enthroned. He has the radiance of Yahweh, and yet he is a man above, a representative man. Of course, the man Christ Jesus in his chariot throne. The second, and perhaps one that clamors for my attention more even than that, is this vision that Daniel had in 713 and 14, but all the way through 727, of one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, not coming to the earth with the clouds in that case, but coming to the ancient of days in the clouds, indicating a heavenly clouds, indicating a heavenly vision. And he comes to the ancient of days. He's presented before the ancient of days. And the ancient of days gives him a kingdom. In the context, there are several animalistic kingdoms that we have studied both in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7. The vision presents four world kingdoms, all of which were corrupted and destroyed, conquered and swept off the deck of history. But this kingdom that the Son of Man receives is a kingdom that is immovable, indestructible, invincible. 
It's a kingdom not only given to him, but it says that the kingdom was given to be received by the saints of the Most High. So it's a kingdom, hint, hint, Hebrews 12, 28, that we are receiving, since we are receiving an immovable kingdom. No commentary I've ever read has this connection, this Danielic connection, or this connection with Daniel. But I think the Hebrews author at least implied it and at least had it in his mind. And Jesus always had this in his mind because 52 times he referred to himself in the third person as the Son of Man. From henceforth you shall see the Son of Man, he said. Angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, John 1.51, speaking of himself. So we're getting the picture here. Is this picture presented in Hebrews like the picture of Daniel's vision, only filling in some details? Daniel didn't say, I saw the Messiah coming in the clouds with his own blood to the Father into the Holy of Holies. The Hebrews author does. The Hebrews author hears something uttered in heaven, not by a man, but by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ, which speaks of the purification of the consciousness of sins. There are millions of Christians that know that their sins are forgiven through the first act of Messiah, who obtained redemption for them. But there are also millions of Christians who still struggle with unresolved guilt, with feelings of unworthiness, and guiltiness of dread and fear. Some of it's vague and hard to identify. Some of it's very sharp, presenting a very sharp sense of self-condemnation. And the blood that's sprinkled speaking in heaven speaks to the purification of the consciousness of sins. There's a difference between consciousness and knowledge. Consciousness is an experience or an awareness. Knowledge is something that's come to that's resulting in understanding. It's factual understanding. Through the knowledge of the blood of Christ purifying our consciousness, our awareness of sin can be eradicated. It can be completely eradicated and perpetually erased, giving us a heavenly amnesia, an amnesia about sins and a remembrance of what Christ did. So let's look at this. See how it fills out the picture. Hebrews 9.11. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. The Messiah has come. Now we've so shown that these good things that have come and are coming, both senses are there, both nuances of meaning are there, He's brought with him good things that have come, which is the alteration of the human situation from enmity to reconciliation, and are coming, which is the promise of the alteration of the human and creational condition, the resurrection unto life, the single outcome of judgment unto justifying life and eternal life in future world, and the liberation of creation from its slavery to corruption all of which are the alteration of the condition that's yet to come. So the Messiah has come as an archpriest 
of good things that have come and are coming through the greater and more complete tent. There's slight nuance changes of the translation here. So where did he come here? Where is the speaking of the Messiah coming? Not to earth. The Messiah has come through the tent to heaven, to the Father, to the Ancient of Days. The Messiah has come. He has entered like the archpriest, but not into an earthly holy of holies, but a heavenly holy of holies. I'll make this even more clear in a moment, or hopefully the Holy Spirit will. The Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that, are, that have come and are coming through the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is not of this creation, meaning this earthly sphere of creation. Verse 12, he entered once and for all. That's a key word in Hebrews, ephapax, E-P-H-A-P-A-X. You'll see it in print, ephapax. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, not with the blood of goats and calves. And I worked out that prepositional exegesis in lesson 300 or increment 300. He entered once and for all, ephapax, through the sanctuary, that's the heavenly one, not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, having obtained eternal redemption. Two acts. He enters into a heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. That's really act two. Having obtained eternal redemption, that's act one. It is finished. The work is done. As Pastor Brown's song beautifully rehearsed for us. Christ or Messiah coming. The Messiah has come. Is speaking from a heavenly perspective. It's seeing him coming heavenward through not an earthly but a heavenly sanctuary. So what was Jesus referring to when he said to Mary of Magdala, stop clinging to me, I have not yet ascended, meaning there's something else I've got to do, not just ascend. I have to go into the heavenly holy of holies with my own blood so that not only will I have achieved the forgiveness of sins, but I will have achieved the means for the purification of your very consciousness of sins, your very remembrance of sins, so that you can know that I do not remember your sins. And not only that, I want to give you the gift of homardiological amnesia. That's what I just called it just now. Just made a word up. Boom. Created just now. Hamardiology is the study of sin. Hamardiological, therefore, has to do with sin or sinfulness. Amnesia means forgetfulness. So it's a gift of forgetfulness of your own sins, where you forget your own sins. Now, this has happened over the course of many years for me. My sins, I used to be terribly self-condemning. I had a kind of guilt that ruined me for any kind of happy living at all. And over the course of the years, this guilt has been 
assuaged until more and more I don't remember my guilt anymore. I don't remember my sins anymore. I don't, it's, it's not there anymore. And so I've re, what's joined with that is a kind of joy, a kind of happiness, a kind of carefreeness. And sometimes I find myself so carefree that I have to hold back on it a little bit because maybe the occasion in which I'm being carefree isn't an appropriate occasion to be happy in. But a sense of humor is part of the joy complex. So Christ's coming here is the reference to his coming not to earth, as in Hebrews 10.7. That's when he's going to speak again. Jesus will speak and say, look, I've come in the volume of the book. It's written of me to do your will, O God. You have prepared a, prepared a body for me. That's his entrance into the earthly sphere from heaven. This is the entrance first. He's, he deals first with the second act. This is his entrance into the heavenly sphere after accomplishing what he came to accomplish on the earth. He accomplished, obtained eternal redemption at inestimable cost on the cross. And he enters into heaven with his own blood. The blood of sprinkling, meaning the blood that sprinkles unto the purification of the consciousness of sins. Now, these Hebrews, as they're called, and they're rightly called Hebrews. Hebrews comes from a word that means those who cross the river, cross the river Jordan. They have, in that sense, passed from death into life. They are Christians. They are largely Jewish Christians or Gentile proselytes to Judaism that are now Christians. And these Hebrews were finding out that, well, you know what? Oh, yes, we believe in the finished work of Christ, but remember when we used to go to the sacrifices and they made an offering for us of animal's blood, we did kind of feel that our conscience was cleansed just for a little bit. At least it was temporarily cleansed and purified. We felt good about everything, even though that went away pretty quick. But why don't we go back there? and do that again. Yes, we believe Jesus died for our sins, but I really think we ought to go back to the sacrifices just so that we can get that little relief that we used to get. And that's something I haven't seen before because in Hebrews 9:14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purify your conscience? That's his offering there again is a heavenly offering where he offers himself to the Father. And he offers his father the blood, which what? Purifies the conscience from dead works. Purifies the consciousness of sins from sins. And from the need, I always put it this way, from the need to think you've got to do works that will balance out the bad things you've done. Those are dead works. They're useless works. They're virtue signal works. They're not real works. And so how much more there indicates something I hadn't seen before. If the blood of bulls and goats served to successfully purify the flesh, the word sarks there means the whole person in a way, then how much more shall the blood of Christ purify the conscience or the consciousness of sins? Hebrews has a definition for conscience that's not found anywhere else in the Bible. And so I have to get 
to define that a little more clearly. So that word, how much more, posal malon, means that the blood of animals not only purified the person ceremonially, but it did serve in some measure to purge the consciousness of guilt. The priest would appear, especially on Yom Kippur, he would appear the first time before he went in, he'd come out again and appear the second time to the people and say the blood has purged you of your sins for another year, the year of atonement, the day of atonement, and the people would be assuaged of their guilt for a little while. So it partially did a cleansing. But the author is saying, no, don't go back there because how much more shall the blood of Christ purify your consciousness of sins from dead works to serve the living God? His offering, his once and for all offering, has the power to perpetually cleanse your consciousness without the need for repeated offerings, and it has the power to completely cleanse, because it goes on later to say in Hebrews 10, those offerings didn't have the power to completely teleao cleanse. They did have the power to cleanse the conscience, and I hadn't realized that before. And so there was a partial cleansing. So this author isn't saying, don't go back to the practices of the Levitical cultus just because it's evil, but because it's insufficient. And that's why he teaches on stuff that nobody else is taught on in Hebrews. He teaches on an element of the work of Christ that no one else touches. There's implications of it. There's hints of it. Like in Revelation 1, where Jesus Christ, in 1, 5, and 6, the firstborn from the dead, loved us and freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God, to God his Father. So as you can see, especially lately in the past few years, I've had to round up a lot of cattle to get this, these thoughts all in a row here. There's a lot of things going on. I'm kind of rounding up a whole lot of cattle here. And sometimes it's more like herding cats. It's hard to gather all these thoughts in my mind. So the Lord has to give me clarity of mind. Especially in my mid middle age, which I probably will approach pretty soon. He entered once and for all, Ephapax, through the sanctuary, that is the, the tent not of this creation, not of this earthly sphere, but of the heavenly creation, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Now you say, now you're getting close to dealing with that whole thing of literal and figurative blood. So what? Well, now we're getting to my, my sensibilities, my Western Occidental sensibilities are being offended. I don't care. Mine are too. Who cares? Both Hebrews 9.11 and 12 and 9.24 are both suggestive of the coming of the Son of Man to be presented before the Ancient of Days. Look at this. Hebrews 9. Jump down there. The first of three appearings or really the second of three appearings. Hebrews 9.24, For the Messiah, 
Christ, did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere representation of the true, but into heaven itself. Heaven itself. Literally heaven. He entered into what? Heaven itself. He entered into the tent, not of this sphere and not of this creation. He entered into, let's make it clear. What I mean is he entered into heaven itself. He didn't enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere representation of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So both, both Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 and 9, 24 are suggestive of the coming of the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, to be presented before the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7.13. Though the PT makes no specific reference to that figure called one like the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13, it's something that the Holy Spirit nudged me to think about. And it was the first thing on my mind. And I said, I don't want that to be the first thing on my mind because I want to talk about the blood speaking in heaven. And it's like having a conversation with the Lord. And the Lord said, you're going to speak about the first thing on your mind, which is Daniel. And I said, but I don't have enough on that. And I, again, I'm not saying this literally happened, but the sense was go to your study and I'll fan that out for you. And he did. In Daniel 7.14, the prophet Daniel goes in to explain that in his vision he saw this figure, this enigmatic figure, called one like a son of man, or one like the ideal man, we could say. In the Theodosian version, now that was a version of the Greek text of the Hebrew Bible, Theodosian, that's T-H-E-O-D-O-T-I-O-N, and that was written probably in 150 A.D., so it was written after Hebrews. So there's some very intriguing things about that because the Theodosian version of the Greek text of Daniel says something slightly different than the translation of the Septuagint or the Septuagint translation or the Hebrew Bible. And you'll see this in print. The Theodosian version says, Kai auto edothe he arche kai he time kai he basileia, which means, and he was given first place, he arche. Interestingly, that's the prefix for archieros, which is archpriest. He was given he arche and kai he time. Time, T-I-M-E, long E, means honor. The other text, the original Septuagint, doesn't say honor. It says authority, exousia. But he says honor. He was given first place and honor and he basilea, the kingdom. The kingdom. And he was given, so it translates like this, and he was given the first place Hearche, and the ultimate honor, Hetime, and the kingdom, meaning the immovable kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, unlike the kingdoms of the beasts. I'm always intrigued by Jesus after the 40 days of temptation. It says he was with the beasts and angels came and ministered to him. That takes in all of creation. The Son of Man, man, with the beasts, 
And this kind of conjures up the bestial kingdoms of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, the image in chapter 2 and the animalist kingdoms culminating with the beast or the Rome kingdom. And Jesus was among them and they tore him apart, but he overcame them by resurrection. He was with the beast and he was ministered to by angels. All the angels of God are now worshiping him. That little scene of, this, of Jesus in the wilderness with the beasts, with all the desert animals, wild animals, who didn't bother him. They were tamed in his presence, and he was ministered to by angels. That takes in the whole of creation. And so he was given the kingdom, not the kingdom of beasts or of animals or savagery or tyranny, but a kingdom which we now know is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God, not just talk. 1 Corinthians 4.20, Romans 14.17. So, in Hebrews, this word time, for honor, is applied to Jesus, the Son of Man, as he's called in Psalm 8. Hebrews 2.6 through 8 is a quotation of Psalm 8, 6 through 8, or the Septuagint passage of 5 through 7. Of, uh, and, it, and there's a curious reference to the Son of Man there. And who is this Son of Man that you are mindful of him? And you have placed everything under his feet. Son of man, again, Psalm 8, son of man. Who is he? Who is this son of man? Well, the writer says, we see him as Jesus. We see Jesus, the son of man, is the idea in Hebrews 2.9, after 2, 6 through 8, which quotes Psalm 8, 6 through 8. We see Jesus, that is, the son of man. See how I'm getting Daniel in this? And that's how the Holy Spirit said, I told you to go with Daniel. There's more there, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. We see Jesus, the Son of Man, crowned with glory and honor, made for a little while, that's temporal, just for a little while lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death in Hebrews 2.10. Now, whenever you see everything under his feet, that makes me jump over to Psalm 110, which is also quoted in Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13, where it says, the father says to his son, the Septuagint's 109.1, but we know Psalm 110.1, the most often quoted or alluded to passage probably in the, all of the New Testament, the father says to the son, or the ancient of days, says to the son of man in our image, sit down at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. He not only puts everything under the feet of the Son of Man, but he puts everything under the feet of he whom he called my son in Psalm 2-7, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. How does he do that? By crushing the enemies? No, by reconciling his enemies. It's one thing to win a, bit, a debate by crushing your opponent. 
It's another thing to win a debate by convincing your opponent of your point of view, converting your opponent. God wins by converting his opponents, not by crushing his opponents. So we could say, using a figure of speech, he crushes his opponents by converting them. I personally was an opponent of God. I used his name like Hollywood uses his name. I used the name of Jesus as a curse, as a terrible blasphemy. I used, I, I was a man of unclean lips and lived in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I was adept at sinning and very good at certain forms of evil and very inventive at certain forms of evil. God crushed me, but he did so by converting me. He turned me and I was turned. He caused repentance in me and I repented. He saved me by his grace and by his faithfulness. He ever saves me now by a purification of my conscience from dead works, from the need to do works or to offer sacrifices to assuage the guilty conscience. I thank God for the gift of the removal of guilt and with it the fear of torment, the fear of hell, the fear of damnation, dread, the vague sense of something bad that has to be happening or will happen, that vague sense, as if, and all that is, is seeing your future without God in it. All fear is, is seeing your future without Jesus Christ there. If you see your future with Jesus Christ there, then even if bad things do happen, Jesus Christ is there. So, in Hebrews 3.3, 3, the scripture says, Jesus was accorded greater honor, Time, than Moses. In Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Then in Hebrews 5.1-4, it speaks specifically of the honor of of being called by God an archpriest. Nobody takes this honor to themselves. Nobody takes the honor of being a priest to themselves. I think I'll be a priest. I used to be an altar boy and I used to think, man, these priests got it made, especially Father Miller. His, his uh, wealthy sister bought him a Toronado every couple years. He smoked big cigars. He lived in the house next to the church. And I didn't think he had to do much work. And I, for a while, I thought, I'm going to be a priest. <laughs> I was going to take that honor to myself. Then, about two years later, I started getting interested in girls. And I said, priests can't be interested in girls, can they? And so it started to put a little dent in, uh, you know, you, you, can, you, you can't be a priest. Not if you like girls. Unfortunately, you could be a priest and like boys for some of them, some of them back then. No, we did have one that was sort of like that, but I used to kind of be not around him too often. But in any case, you don't take that honor to yourself. God has to bestow it on you. He bestows the honor of priest on you. So the later Theodosian version of Daniel reveals a possible hint of the honor of archpriests forever conferred on this son of man. So when he appears before God, 
the divine man receives not only sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for my feet, he then hears this from the Father, you are a priest forever like Melchizedek who foreshadowed you. Now, this didn't mean this conferring of title of archpriest on Jesus Christ didn't mean that he just got it then. He's eternally an archpriest. But it was conferred upon the man, the divine man, Christ Jesus. You are a priest forever. That means your work is perpetual. Your purification through propitiation is perpetual forever and ever and ever. You will be able to save your people to the utmost, for you have paid the utmost to secure redemption for them. Nobody takes this honor to themselves. And so the Theodosian version of Daniel reveals a possible hint of the honor of the archpriest forever conferred on this son of man who receives honor, and that's honor of priesthood. And glory is the glory of a king, and a kingdom, an indestructible kingdom, unlike the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, unlike the kingdom of Darius and the Persians and the Medes, unlike the kingdom of Alexander and the Grecians, unlike the kingdom of the Caesars in Rome, unlike the kingdoms of this world right now, unlike the kingdoms of the world that started off in glory but ended up in the inglorious sphere of tyranny. This is an indestructible kingdom. So the aforementioned honor, that which was not grabbed for himself, but is called by God an archpriest and given that honor. So beyond interesting, the priest forever foreshadowed by Melchizedek, which we dealt with a long time ago in Hebrews 7, from Genesis 14, 16 to 18, and, or 18 to 20, and Psalm 110.4, is connected to the Son of Man by a connection between Psalm 8, where God puts all things under the feet of the Son of Man, and Psalm 110.1, the royal Son of God, whom God commands, sit at the, my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. So though the honor of the archpriest is conferred on Jesus, it must be noted that he is already that by virtue of the fact that he is an eternal archpriest. More than that, in Daniel 7.18, it says, The saints of the Most High will receive. Now that's interesting. They will receive, this is a prophetic vision, they will receive a kingdom. They will receive this kingdom. That's Daniel 7.18. And possess it forever. In Daniel 7.27 it says this everlasting kingdom is to be given to the saints of the Most High. So I refer to this in connection with Hebrews. Why is this connected to Hebrews, this receiving of a kingdom? Because in Hebrews 12, 28, the teaching shepherd says to his audience, then and now, therefore receiving, that's para lambano, receiving 
paralambano, receiving a kingdom. Therefore, receiving a kingdom in the present act of participle. It was future, that same word paralambano was used in the future in Daniel. It's used in the present in Hebrews. Receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, an immovable kingdom, let us have grace with which we may serve, latruo is used here, which is used also in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ purify your consciousness from dead works to serve latruo as priests? Because in Hebrews 8.5, it talks about the service of priests and it's latruo. So the word here indicates the service of priests. So, therefore, receiving an immovable kingdom, let us have grace with which we may serve as priests God in an acceptable manner with modesty and awe. That's my translation. Modesty and awe. In today's culture, we say, what's modesty? <laughs> it says modesty and awe because modesty is becoming of those who are what they are by the grace of God if you are what you are by the grace of God and if you're an apostle like Paul by the grace of God do you boast that you're an apostle no you boast in the grace of God you boast in the Lord modesty is the quality of the priesthood that we are part of because we have not taken this honor for ourselves. God has bestowed it. Modesty is becoming. It's decorous. It's appropriate of those who are what we are by the grace of God. And know it. 1 Corinthians 15.10 that we are what we are and have what we have by what we've freely received from God. And that's the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament is the reading of the will and testament by the Holy Spirit who shows us things that have been freely given to us by God. If all that you have is what you've received, and John the baptizer said it well, a man can receive nothing unless he receives it from heaven as a gift. If all that we have we receive, then why do we boast as if we didn't receive it, but somehow earned it? Modesty is the recognition that all that we have in Christ we've received by grace, free grace. That's modesty. Let us have grace carries with it the important nuance of gratitude. Having grace carries with it the important nuance of gratitude. You can't be aware of grace received without gratitude returned. When the ten lepers were cleansed by Jesus Christ, one came back. And Jesus said, where are the nine? I mean, gratitude seems to be the fruit of receiving grace. Where are the nine? And I always like to think they'll be along.
Jesus didn't say that because he needs to be thanked. He said that because gratitude is the obvious fruition of grace. In other words, did those other nine think they earned that healing? Did one only think it was a gift from me? And therefore came back to simply say, thank you. So, this makes me think of what Jesus said to his disciples. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. I chose you. And I appointed you. We could say ordained, as some translations do, but better is appointed. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that lasts, he said. Fruit that lasts, indicating it never becomes overripe. It never rots. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. What is that? Effective priestly function. Making intercession. Approaching the throne of grace to receive help in the form of mercy. Appropriate help for the time of need. And intercession for others. So it's curious that Jesus said, I've appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that lasts, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. John 15, 16. What God requires of us is that we act justly, love mercy. And as the Septuagint puts it in Micah 6, 8, be ready to walk with the Lord your God. The Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, says to love grace or kindness. What God requires of you is to love grace and kindness, meaning to love grace so much that you're kind, that you've received so much mercy that you're merciful. That's all that God requires of us now. That we act justly, Love mercy and be ready to walk with the Lord your God. The Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, says to love grace or kindness and to walk humbly, halak tsana, or better, to behave modestly with your God. Come unto me, Jesus said. And learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. I'm modest, for all that I am is from my Father. Learn from me. All that I have is from his grace. All that I am is because of his mercy. The grace of God has appeared teaching us to what? Deny all ungodliness and to live soberly in this world. Justly, to act justly. And righteously in this world. So in closing, we've been speaking here 
of an oblique connection to Daniel's prophetic vision of the coming in clouds, of the one like a son of man. We know from Daniel that he's coming with the clouds. We know from the Hebrews author that he's coming with his own blood. That he has come with his own blood. Does that take away from Jesus Christ and him crucified? No, because it's the crucified Christ that comes to, with his blood. So let's close by looking, and I'm skipping some things here in my notes at least, so you might get a supplement in the notes a little more. Hebrews 12. But you've come, and these are hints of things that I'm going to develop further. But you have come. Now you've come. He's come. Now you've come. And in the context, now to Mount Sinai, the place of the inauguration of the old covenant, which made Moses even fear and quake. But you've come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. You've come, heavenly Jerusalem. And the myriads of angels, a festive gathering. And to the community of the firstborn enrolled in the heavens, and to God, the judge of everyone, and the completed spirits of the righteous, and to the mediator of the ever new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks. The word is laleo. Doing some Greek here today. Laleo. Speaks. The sprinkled blood that speaks. Same word, laleo, is used in 2 Corinthians 12.4. I heard things I can't speak about in heaven. God doesn't let the man speak, but he lets the blood speak. The blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Now here's the question, and I'll be teaching this out. Is this the blood of Abel that was spilled by an act of murder by his brother Cain and cried out to God from the ground? There is that blood. Or is this blood of Abel the blood of the sacrifices that Abel made that speak to God of the righteousness of the Lamb? In a foreshadow, whereas the blood in heaven is the reality. There's much to recommend both but the scales for me are tipping a little bit toward the blood that Abel offered in sacrifice when he sacrificed from the flock while Cain sacrificed from the field. And now we will look at 2 Corinthians 12, as I promised. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, in verse 1, whether with the body or not, in other words, I was caught up to heaven, I don't know... My body went with me or not. So I I've never translated it that way, but now that I understand the preposition meaning with, I do. Whether with the body or not, I don't know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. That's through the atmospheric and astronomic heavens, taking the same route that Jesus did in Hebrews 4.14, bodily, the Son of God passed through the heavens. I have intimate knowledge of this man, Paul said. I know this man very well, Oida. 
Whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, he said, again, God knows. So don't write this up as an out-of-the-body experience because I don't know if I was in or out of the body. So don't write me up on the out-of-the-body experience. I don't know. God knows. Was snatched up into paradise. Third heaven equals paradise. And heard inexpressible things. Aretas meaning things which are not proper for a man to speak. Things that are not proper for a man to speak. Auk exon anthropo la lesai, things that a man isn't appropriate to speak. A man can't speak what Paul heard in the third heaven in paradise, but the blood of sprinkling can. You know what he heard? He heard a voice you don't come back to earth and talk about, the voice of sprinkled blood. Now, how am I going to tell people I heard the voice of sprinkled blood? I saw Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the better covenant, the everlasting covenant. I saw the sprinkled blood, and I heard the sprinkled blood speaking. So I'm going to come back and give my testimony in a church and say, I heard unspeakable things. I heard living, perpetual, heavenly, sprinkled blood that sprinkles unto purification, speaking and giving an eloquent speech that's greater than the speech offered by the blood that Abel offered in foreshadowing sacrifices. For this is the once and for all sacrifice and the blood that purifies the consciousness of sins. But my question is, is what Paul was forbidden to say permitted to be said by the PT who wrote Hebrews. Go and learn what that means. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We've looked into the Word of God and seen things that are awesome, seen things that we must be modest about receiving, for they are the product of your grace and your spirit of your grace, revealing things that we would never have imagined to be revealed. I pray, Father, that you will allow us to suspend our usual human means of perception and be granted a heavenly perspective and to hear what the sprinkled blood is speaking, to hear the eloquent speech of the sprinkled blood, for we know what that means in great measure already. It speaks about the purification of our consciousness and the assurance that we have that our sins are forgotten by you, that you remember them no more, and that you now have given us the gift of spiritual amnesia for our own sins, and therefore the capacity to show mercy and to be quick to forgive those who have wronged us. And we thank you for this privilege, for we stand in your presence today, Father, because the Son of Man stands in your presence and he is our representative and he is the one who embodies us all so we stand in your presence father with boldness and with great joy and we are what we are by your grace 
And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.